things that perform poorly are generally just vague, generic things like what's going on today? Like people will actually put that in their subject line and it's just, don't do that. This is Heart of the Story and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. Hi, friends. You are the absolute best. Thank you for your support and celebration of the release of my new book, Come Home to Your Heart. I'm delighted to see all of you with the book. You're sending me pictures and sending me messages, and I just feel really grateful. Thank you. I've also been getting messages about my writer workout community. So lots of you have been wanting more info about that because I open the doors to it a couple times a year and I just open the doors back up again. So writer workout is my community of women writers, all genres, all levels from all over the world. And we meet every Monday on Zoom at noon central. I give craft talks and prompts and then we write together in community and there's optional sharing at the end. And it is my absolute favorite place to be besides with my family. (laughs) So it's like my family and writer workout because you are my family, my writer workout writers. If you want more info about how you can try out a class for free, you can message me through my website, nadinekennyjohnstone.com. There's a little contact envelope icon at the bottom of my webpage and you can contact me through there and I'll give you all the info. You are going to love today's conversation. Oh man, this is like a life highlight to be speaking with our guest today. So let's dive right in to my interview with writing guru, Jane Friedman. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled. So to give listeners some context, I got to have the great privilege of seeing Jane lead a keynote speech at the San Miguel Writers Conference years ago when I was presenting there. And I already knew of your wisdom and wonder because I had gone to your website many times to guide me through things like book proposal writing. But when I saw you speak in person, it was wonderful to see that wisdom pouring through. So I thought one day, We'll have to have a conversation. And I'm thrilled that not only do we get to have the conversation, but that everybody gets to listen in. (laughs) So, So I want to back up because everyone thinks of you as this wonderful expert. You give so many tips and tricks. Your newsletter, The Hot Sheet, is the go to place for industry insider info. I assume you didn't come out of the womb exactly like this, (laughs) but maybe. So let's back up a little bit. And can you tell us a bit about your writing journey, how you came to be both a writer and book business expert? 
Well, it probably all goes back to starting my career at a midsize commercial publishing house that was very disciplined about making sure every effort made money. And that might sound strange, but actually there are a lot of publishing houses, uh, especially on the literary end that don't necessarily put profits first. I know that's a shock. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of gut instinct and subjectivity that goes into publishing, even at the corporate level. There's not a whole lot of, let's say, market research or consumer research that happens in book publishing. Yet I worked for a very rare publishing house that did do market research, that had consumer research that went on all the time, and also was just very uh, forward thinking in terms of how it conducted business. So that really shaped how I looked at my job. And, you know, it's not that I jumped into it thinking, oh, yay, business. (laughs) I can't wait to master the business of publishing. But what was unique about this company, the name of it, unfortunately, the company no longer exists, uh, but the name of it was F&W. And even though it was very business focused and disciplined, it also was very human centered. And it was, you know, the mission of the company was to help creative people fulfill their dreams. And everyone really believed in it. And I think there was just this very Midwestern sensibility about running this company and publishing books and magazines and running book clubs that we were going to do that. And we were going to do that in a way that was fiscally responsible and that kept employees paid and fed. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's the root of it. And of course, that company was home to Writer's Digest. So Writer's Digest, probably many people are aware, is it's a magazine, it's a book line, it offers online education and annual conference. And so I eventually ended up working for that brand. I didn't start there. I started in another division, but I ended up at Writer's Digest. And so that kind of married together both the writing and the industry side with just this larger corporate focus on um, on the discipline. I guess I'm going to just repeat that word, <laughs> let that sink in for people, because that's the best way I can describe its approach. Mm. And along the way, what kind of writing were you doing? Uh, not much, at least as far as creative writing. Um, early in my career, I mean, I graduated as a BFA on creative writing. And while I was working in my earliest positions at FNW, I was also getting a master's in English. And so I did still think of myself primarily as, I guess, a creative writer. Um, and I was doing poetry and personal essays and even trying to do fiction. But, you know, it's really hard for me to work a full-time job in publishing like that, where you're focusing on editing and also doing a write of writing, frankly, um, for the benefit of other authors. Yeah, It's just really hard to then go home and do more of the same. Um, although I did to some extent, but there was a very specific moment. I want to say it was 2004. Because <laughs> I was at a very specific writing conference. It was at the Midwest Writers Workshop. And I was sitting next to this wonderful woman, for those who know the author, Haven Kimmel. It was Haven Kimmel's mother I was sitting next to. And she was asking me what I was writing. And I hated that question at conferences. What are you writing? Mm. Because I wasn't doing any for the most part. 
And it just made me feel like a failed writer. And so she was a very perceptive, wise woman. And I think she immediately recognized um, the problem I was facing. And she said, she took my hand and she said, well, honey, you're just tired. (laughs) She was like, she was, she was like giving me permission not to feel like a failure and not to write while I was focused on this other thing in my life. And from that point on, I've just, I have not given it another ounce of thought. If and when I have the opportunity or the bandwidth to do the creative writing, I do it, but I'm not beating myself up over it. I love that story because so many of us do feel torn between jobs and or the writing business and writing itself, which is two very different things and uses two very different parts of the brain. And for me, I find that I can't do creative writing on days when I'm focused on teaching or coaching or anything. It has to be very separate in my brain. So it's just wonderful to be able to hear that story and also be able to see how much time and energy and effort you've been putting into this for many, many (laughs) years. And as you were really getting deep into the book writing industry, when did you start seeing that people needed tips and advice? Well, you know, having started early in my career at Writer's Digest, it was pretty obvious that it was a big business. <laughs> and some people find that what it can give people actually a cynical view of the writing advice industry. It is an industry, you know, because one of the quickest ways for any creative writer to make a living is to start dispensing advice to other writers. <laughs> it's more profitable than trying to make money off of the novel or the poem or the short story. And that's just the truth of the matter. And so that does for people who've been around long enough, it does give them a critical eye on the writer's digests of the world or the people who make this their bread and butter as I do. But there is like, there's a way to do it that's respectful and honest and transparent and isn't predatory on people's dreams. So people, you know, people have really, really big ambitions and dreams for what they're writing, what change it will affect in the world, what earnings they're going to get from it, how their life might change all sorts of motivations get mixed up in this. And so if you can honor that and do it in a way that's reasonable, that's not taking advantage, that's what I'm attempting to do, obviously. And then there are people who maybe aren't so transparent and maybe they're not necessarily predatory, but they're definitely, they understand the psychological buttons and levers (laughs) to get people to open up their wallet and pay lots and lots and lots of money because they want, they want to achieve that dream. So that, you know, to get the agent, to get the publishing deal. Mm. So, you know, you can just look at when I joined Writer's Digest, you know, I saw all of the numbers. I saw the subscriber numbers. I saw all the money pouring into the clubs and the books and the online education. And it's not a mystery to, at least to me, why so many people are looking for the advice 
because it's it's hard. It's hard to advance in the art. And then it's also hard to advance on the business side. And especially on the business side, it's not a terribly transparent industry. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mythology surrounding it, both good and bad. There is um, mystique. There is a lot of misinformation. And of course, everyone's experience varies so widely. So it's very easy to get conflicting and confusing advice. And of course, this just fuels more of the business of giving advice. Mm. Mine is the best advice, or here's what what people won't tell you. You know, there's a lot of that going on. What do you think sets you apart in terms of that transparent approach? What does that look like for anyone who might be unfamiliar with you and your approach? I've found you from the start to be a very trusted and trustworthy guide. How do you make that happen? I lower people's expectations. I mean, I think that's the heart of it. I I don't, I respect that people have dreams and ambitions. And I do think it's possible to achieve that through hard work and persistence and all of, and all of the things that I preach. But by and large, people do not succeed um, on a commercial level in writing and publishing. And I try to emphasize that without, some people say, I don't sugarcoat mm-hmm. the message. I'm not blowing smoke. And by lowering expectations, I really consider it about adjusting expectations and getting people to recognize, okay, why are you doing this? Are you expecting to achieve X in one year's time and five years time and trying to get them to see the enormity of what they're trying to do on often a very short time frame, and trying to encourage people, look, if this is what you really want, it could take you 10 years. It could take you 20 years. Are you going to be in it for that long? And there are no guarantees here. So that's my approach. Aside from just giving as much free information as possible about the foundational aspects of the business. I don't feel like people should have to pay lots of money just to learn how to write a query or know how to research an agent or understand what publishing paths are available to them. So I've tried very hard through my website in particular and through my free newsletter to give people the foundational tools that they need to be educated, to approach the business in a way that A, doesn't waste their time and energy and B, ensures they're not ripped off by someone who's not honest. Mm, Yes. So how do you help people still have hope if they are being educated about how hard and long and tumultuous this road can be, how do you still give them a bit of hope in the meantime? Well, I I tell people to look for what is it that gives you joy about this activity or in this endeavor. Usually the work is its own reward, regardless of whether you're getting paid, whether you're getting the validation you're seeking. Those things, I think, come sporadically, they come after time. But if you're only doing it for the money or for the validation or for that external reward, I find that people can give up very quickly. So I try to redirect people towards not looking for the external and focusing on what gives them the satisfaction, because that's why you're going to keep doing it, because there's that internal sense of I'm accomplishing something. Mm -hmm. I think also some people get really focused on the wrong things because of the advice givers. And I include myself in that 
where we talk about, well, you, you have to pay some attention to the business or you have to build platform, or maybe you should think about a website or you should think about social media. And we start getting into the tools, into the marketing. And I think that paralyzes some people and also takes them away from what gives them joy in the first place. So as soon as people start to lose hope or get bitter or you know some of these things that cause you to short circuit, I tell people return to why you initially got into this it's different for everyone, that wellspring. Although if it's money motivated, (laughs) there are things you can write and publish that will earn you money, but it's often not the same thing that you naturally or, you know, uh, got into the business for. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm sure you see on the receiving end, similar obstacles being faced again and again and again by writers. So what are some of the biggest problems that you encounter that writers are trying to overcome? Some of it's mindset issues, some of it's more practical businessy issues. In terms of mindset, I've kind of circled around these already. One is patience. People just expect things to happen on a really fast timeline. And it's slow. It, it takes a long time to both level up your craft. Um, It often takes three, four, five manuscripts before you produce something that is going to get an agent or publisher's attention, assuming that's your goal, traditional publication. If you're self-publishing, you know, again, if you talk to anyone who's succeeded, they'll probably tell you, well, I didn't really gain any traction until book four or book five, or it wasn't until book 20, you know, that I started to earn a living wage. And some people are just expecting with that first book, the doors are going to blow off. And I think that's early in my career, I realized the big problem for many writers wasn't necessarily getting an agent or even getting a book deal. Although those are huge accomplishments where I found things really, the wheels really (laughs) fell off is when they realized their book was on the shelf, spine out, and nobody knew it existed. What do you do? And that's just, I feel like that hits some authors very hard. And it's the moment when they decide, do I really want to do a second or a third? Can I keep this up? How do I motivate myself when maybe I didn't get the publisher's support or I didn't get the reviews I wanted and I didn't make any money. Why do you continue? So I think, again, this kind of goes back to the lowering of expectations, but trying to prepare people for that moment and realize everyone else is in the same situation and how can you prepare for that moment in a way that you don't have this horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach So that's one issue I see, even when people have succeeded in some way. I think other issues often relate to marketing and promotion. So this kind of ties in with the first problem where people just are resistant for whatever reason to doing whatever is required to get their book visible. The good news is that there's no one answer. Like you can market and promote your books or be visible to readers in so many different ways. It doesn't just have to be social media. It doesn't have to be TikTok. It doesn't have to be whatever is the new shiny. But because there are so many advice givers saying, oh, well, you have to do these things and this is how books sell now, there's this pressure and this burden and this like, oh, now I have to do this other thing that takes me away from the writing itself. Still, though, I think there are ways to market and promote that come out of the work itself, 
that are not the lipstick on the pig that you can sustain for the entirety of your career. So I try to spend a lot of time helping writers get out of this mindset that, oh, now it's time to put on the marketing hat, which is totally different from who I am normally. Mm. And now I'm going to talk in marketing language. No, like nobody wants that. Your readers don't want that. Your publisher doesn't want that. And it's, we've set up, I think this is a cultural issue um, and also a mythology that surrounds art that you can't be both artist and marketer, that these two things are in conflict with each other. And maybe they are, but I think it's a healthy tension. You have to be able to think through, why does anyone care about this book I've produced? And how can I talk about it in a way that will generate excitement? I think that achieving that, being able to talk about your book naturally in a way that makes sense to you over time, I think that's achievable for any writer. I don't think it means being a marketing mastermind. Mm-hmm. What are ways in your own life or writers that you've seen where they've really taken on that marketing path in, in a way that feels sustainable? Because that's what I talk to a lot of writers about is just, as you said, marketing can feel so icky. It can feel overwhelming. But if they're doing things that authentically bring them joy, the way that writing does, it could be a good pairing. So what have you seen in your own life and other writers' lives? Well, I'll point to some authors who I think are obviously, A, doing it well, and it's it's effective. And it appears that they are enjoying themselves, although sometimes appearances are (laughs) deceptive. But um, I'll mention two people. I, I know that this is okay with them. Uh, Meg Medina is a children's author. And we actually recently did a little Zoom session for the public where we talked about her marketing through her website and her email newsletter and her blog and social media. And she's someone who you look at all the ways she's engaging with people and you're like, how does she have time for that? But I think it's because she's just been very methodical and she's, she's set up a system that she can repeat again and again. And she's not sitting every day wondering, oh, what am I going to do today? Well, no, Friday is the day that I read a note I received from a reader and, you know, she'll read it into the camera and then put that on Instagram or TikTok, or she'll have a frequently asked question from a reader or writer. And she'll answer that in about 60 seconds in a short video. She also does at my urging, (laughs) she does a more frequent email newsletter rather than blogging, because I think this suits her work and what she does. And you read her newsletter and it's delightful. And I, I think she must have a lot of fun putting that together. And you can usually tell when someone is enjoying themselves. So it's something that enhances her work. You know, it's not this weird thing that, you know, she has to do on the side. It's clearly a natural outgrowth. And then another person I'll mention is Ann Garvin, who founded actually a marketing collective called Tall Poppy Writers for Women's Fiction Authors. And I think she discovered early on that It's very lonely to be marketing by yourself and you can do a better job when you're collaborating with other people and bringing attention to everyone's work. So rising tide lifts all boats mentality, which is very true for books and reading. Just because a reader falls in love with author A doesn't mean they're not going to read author B. So she is a really great marketer, but she's not trained as one. She has really good instincts. And a lot of it is just enthusiasm and sharing that enthusiasm with other people. 
people respond to things that you're excited about, as long as it's done with the idea of service rather than, oh my God, I'm desperate by my book, (laughs) which that can work on occasion in extraordinary circumstances, um, but it's not a consistent strategy you can repeat. Yeah, people usually sniff it out pretty immediately, the desperation. Yeah. Well, this repeatability is really key, setting up a system so that um, I find that it minimizes decision fatigue. I think what overwhelms writers is, as you said, what do I do today and what's my next thing? If you develop something that is repeatable, then you're making less decisions on a weekly and daily basis. I also love just the short clips that you were talking about from the first author, Meg. Both of the things that you described are things that are reader related too. So you're bringing your reader into the conversation. It's not just me yammering on about my thing or my book or my course. It's, oh, there's a reader fan letter. I'm sure that that reader feels so happy to have their Mm -hmm. letter read out loud. But also in the meantime, that shows other people, look, people are fans of my work. And then the other one is, okay, you have a question, I'm going to answer it. So you're offering expertise. That's really, really smart. Yeah. And then the second author, the collaboration, that to me has been the biggest part of my writing journey, feeling less lonely, even with this podcast is who can I speak to? I don't want to be in a room alone day in and day out, though I love my alone time of writing, how it feels less alone, more fun, more enjoyable, more of an enthusiastic venture is to be able to talk to other people on a podcast or co-teach a a class or retreat. Collaboration really is so key. And oftentimes I tell writers who don't have a, a large platform, well, where can you be a guest that that platform already exists? The people are already there, right? Rather than you going, Absolutely. I wrote this thing on my website that nobody's going to come and see. So newsletters have been amazing for you. And I feel like you were on the newsletter train way before like mm-hmm. it got its big height now with Substack and things like that. So tell us a bit about how you started reaching your audience via newsletter and how you even knew what to talk about. It started while I was still employed by F&W. And, you know, this is a company that was into email marketing also way ahead of everyone else. And I saw the effect that the company's newsletters had on community, marketing, editorial, sales, like the whole nine yards. I saw that it was a very powerful tool. and. Late during my tenure at that company, I was speaking pretty frequently at writers conferences and I thought, gosh, I wish I could capture some of the value of this because I was already thinking, you know, I'm not going to be at this company forever. And, you know, I don't want to be left without capturing some of the value here. And I started signing up people at my workshops. Mm -hmm. So I would pass around a list for people to add their email address. And my offer was, if you sign up for my email newsletter, you're going to get the slide presentations for the next conference that I do. So Mm -hmm. I will post them for you all and 
it's like you, you've been in my this class, you now you get to be in all the rest, at least sort of. And that's how it started. And it was I, I was able to get to a thousand people pretty quickly that way. And initially it wasn't even technically a newsletter. It was a Google group, which would email people when there was like a new message from me or whatever. And then I've transitioned to MailChimp, which is an email marketing service provider and started putting signups on my website primarily. And so then once I started blogging at my own website and I started getting traffic to those posts, that's what drove the growth of the newsletter from there. Um, around 2015, 2016, I decided to add what everyone hates, which is a pop-up <laughs> to my site, which says, would you like to sign up for my email newsletter? And that's when my numbers skyrocketed. And now I understand why people use pop-ups because they work. Now I use what I consider a polite <laughs> pop-up, meaning it, it only appears once and it only appears as you're about to leave. It's called an exit intent pop-up. So you can look for that. If you use a pop-up or want to look for the exit intent pop-up. And there are also, there are also so many rules you can apply to make sure that it does what you want and it's not annoying people. So yeah, that's how the free newsletter started. And that was like, it started around 2009 in that rough way I discussed, and it's still going now. And again, the signups are still mainly through my website. And now I just have a lot of word of mouth because I've been around so long at this point. And then I started the paid newsletter. This was prior to Substack existing in 2015. And that has mainly just, again, been word of mouth and people who are already familiar with me from my other things. And they say, oh, well, if I'm getting all this for free, I wonder what happens if I pay $60 a year. So that it hasn't been that hard of a sell, but it is for a very particular sort of writer. It's not for everyone. Hmm. I love the exit one, the exit intent, because I hate pop-ups typically to be transparent. And so I don't have a, a pop-up on my website, but I, I love the polite pop-up. That that seems like a nice, <laughs> like it's, I know you're about to leave it. It's just, here it is. And what would you say to anyone who is watching all these writers get on Substack and how can they best serve their audience via a free and or paid newsletter? Maybe you can talk about both. Like what should people be doing in their newsletters that is actually worth their time, the reader's time as well? It's so hard to answer because it's a cross section of what you yourself can sustain and are excited to write about frequently. And by frequently, I mean, I feel like you need to be doing this at least once a month if you want to see a meaningful payoff. And also if you want to like actually get good at it, because <laughs> it, for some people, it's very, a very new activity and like any kind of writing, it takes practice and you have to see what gets results. It's not that you shouldn't have a newsletter that's only sent a few times a year, but I don't know that you're just not getting the full benefit from it. Okay. So off soapbox. So the cross section of what you can sustain, what you're interested in and exciting about uh, where your strengths or your voice are going to shine through. And then obviously what is it that your readers are going to appreciate? Now, if you already have some books out or you have things out that people enjoy, most likely 
they're going to be interested in whatever it is that you're working on and that you're willing to share about that process. They're going to probably be interested in behind the scenes. They could be interested in your media consumption habits. What other authors or podcasts or newsletters do you enjoy? It's kind of like, you know, I have authors I really admire and follow, and I love hearing from them because it, especially if it's in the email and it's nowhere else, you do feel like you're part of the special club that's getting the insight. Just last night, I went to a concert held by Ben Folds. And this is a musician I've followed for years. Now, I wouldn't call myself a super fan, but I certainly like pretty much know all of his albums and, and have them. And he mentioned during that concert, are any of my Patreon fans out there? And there was a, a small isolated cheer that went up and I didn't even know he had one. And he was like, now I'm going to play a couple songs that were inspired by people on Patreon sharing news headlines. And I'm like, oh, I miss this. I'm not part of the club. <laughs> so often if you, but okay, this just applies to people who are able to generate that excitement with people who are already familiar with your work. And that obviously takes time. So what I find the more difficult cases are, I don't have a published book yet, or I'm just so early. I don't really have a fan base established. I don't know what to say or do. And, you know, that can be challenging, but you just have to push through it and pretend as if you have already arrived and figure out, is there any way that you can turn this to a productive purpose that might be inspiring for you? So for instance, even for myself in uh, my free newsletter, I have an opening note that I write. And sometimes they're about personal things going on in my life. And for me, it's the little seed of maybe a personal essay that I could write in the future. So it's like I'm stockpiling or composting or planting these seeds and later on, they could grow into something very special. So that's a way of feeding my own creative life. And you totally use your newsletter to do that because it's holding you to account. You're making the commitment. It's discipline that you're going to do this every two to four weeks. And I find that, you know, the cliche is you don't wait for the muse to arrive. You sit down and train the muse to arrive. <laughs> and it's true with newsletters. You just have to commit. Mm. Okay. Well, I have about 75 follow-up questions. <laughs> um, uh, first one, how, what do you think, given the analytics, what do you think is a good length for a newsletter? I don't think there is a good length. It's about your content strategy to use a business term. So for example, I subscribe to a newsletter by Josh Spector. It's called For the Interested, and he's kind of renowned for having the shortest newsletter ever. It's typically about two sentences per oh. issue. <laughs> and he's normally pointing to something else. He's like, you've got to watch this YouTube video, um, go to the 14-minute mark and hear this amazing advice about X. That's the newsletter. And he sends it pretty frequently, um, maybe three to five times a week. So it's high frequency but it's short and he has really good open rates and engagement. Myself, on the other hand, I have a pretty lengthy newsletter by some people would say it's too long, but I'm only sending it every two weeks. And I feel like there's a purpose to each and every section. So 
I don't know, the free one, I don't know that I've run a word count on it lately, but it's probably not more than 2000 words and it works. So I think it just depends on what, what you decide is going to go in it. And over time, you may, you might find yourself shortening it. You might find yourself lengthening it. And so there's no wrong way to do it. But I do think writers put too much burden on themselves to make it long or to like make it somehow worth sending. Anything is worth sending from my perspective. What you, one of the purposes of the newsletter is to stay front of mind for people to not be forgotten. So even if they're not actually reading the newsletter, if they just see your name in their inbox, even if they don't have time for it, they're not interested in that subject line, as long as they stay subscribed, I think it's serving a valuable purpose. So that next time this person is wondering, what's an author I should read next, or who should I recommend, or who should I invite, who should I review, whatever, your name is much more likely to come up than someone who's not sending a newsletter. Mm. And I think it's helpful too, what you just talked about is for writers to pay attention to the newsletters they enjoy receiving and to think about why they enjoy receiving them. Mm -hmm. And might any of that translate, any of those structures translate to their own newsletter content? Okay, so if you really like three different people's newsletters because you like that at the top, they talk about what's going on in their personal life and you feel like you're a friend or you're part of this Mm -hmm. club, then maybe a little personal note at the top might be helpful, so on and so forth. And thinking about frequency, I always find that I'm afraid of annoying my reader. So what do you find is a good difference between I want to stay top of mind and, oh, I'm pushing the annoyance button <laughs> for my readers. Well, the most direct way to know that is by the unsubscribe rates. Mm-hmm. So if you see that there's a really high unsubscribe rate for a very particular issue, then you either did something in that issue that made people angry, like maybe you talked about a political hot button issue. Uh-huh. Or there there was just something in there that was like, people are like, nope, this is not worth my time anymore. So look for the spikes. That'll tell you a lot. But if it's just on a, like a day to day and you feel like you're getting a high number of unsubscribes, and this is just really your own pattern will develop. Usually it's going to be less than 1% per issue. If you find that it's just a lot of people dropping off, like higher than 1%, then I would have to ask, how are people getting onto the list? Sometimes people will offer an ethical bribe where you like offer some sort of freebie to get people on the list. And then once they get it, they don't care anymore. So you might, you might have ways of getting people on that are just not very, these are people who don't have a commitment yet. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do, but you're going to have higher churn or you're going to annoy, annoy those people who weren't really interested in the first place. Yeah. So we don't, we don't really care about that so much, but you may want to consider or reconsider what you're telling people, what expectations you're setting for what they're going to receive in the newsletter. So you want to make sure that all of that is forthcoming, that you're delivering on what you promised that you've got that commitment there. Like if people are expecting you to send every month that you're sending every month. So I find that people being annoyed is usually because you miscommunicated or didn't, you weren't clear about what people were going to get. Mm. Those issues aside, 
it's rare that you're annoying people unless you've just been super lazy or careless, I guess. In other words, not planning <laughs> for what's going to... We have a special visitor. We do. Jane's we do. cat is amazing. Um, this happened to me once. So I speak from experience where I, I wasn't, even though I started my newsletter early on, I wouldn't say I was a committed sender until I was at least five years in. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that when I was sitting down to do it, it was more like, oh, crap, I got to put out this thing. It's been too long. And I would hurriedly put something together and send it out. And I got a lot of unsubscribes because it, it didn't look like I cared. And I sort of, ca I cared enough to send it, but I didn't care enough to put much thought into it. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that cycle, you might be annoying people. But by and large, I think it's a concern that's not merited. Mm -hmm. I think people are just, it's um, maybe it's imposter syndrome or you yourself aren't comfortable with the idea of sending it. But if people genuinely signed up to hear from you, you're likely not annoying them. Mm -hmm. I'll ask one last question on this topic, and then I have many more things I'm curious about. And while I didn't plan on, on staying on newsletters for a while, I think I'm finding it so fascinating. Just one, because you've been doing this for a long time and you have a great, like people know of your newsletters, both of them. And it's a coveted thing. Like the hot sheet is a coveted thing. And I find that for writers who are trying to grow their platforms and create a loyal reader base, many who are leery of social media, the newsletter feels like an accessible place where they can do this. Also, the other concern for many people, if they only have social media as the place where their readers and fans find out about them, in some ways they feel like they have a kingdom built out of sand because if any of those social media platforms go away, there is the connection with their readers that goes away too. So the newsletter feels accessible. So Last thing I'm curious about with that, though, I think if you haven't already, like a whole masterclass on the newsletter thing would be amazing, is what have you found to get the highest click rates for you for your <laughs> newsletter? Is there a pattern? You know, it's funny you should ask because it's been quite a number of years since I really studied the open rates based on topic or keyword. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, it's all gut, you know, mm. but I can say that there are definitely evergreen issues and topics that people are always going to open. Like if there's something related to agents or to author earnings or money or whatever the controversial issue of the day is, like right now, AI, mm. I, if I had to guess and I looked at those open rates, they would be higher. So there are certain things I know just by being in the community, these are top of mind and people are definitely going to open, but I'm not chasing the opens or the clicks at this point. I can tell you some of the worst performing things are like if you do an interview or a Q&A and you put that person's name like right in the subject line or in the headline and people don't know that name, they're not going to read it. Mm. So that's something I, I have learned the hard way. 
so you have to think about what's the angle or the lesson or the secret or the like, what's the topic that will interest people in this person rather than assuming they'll just want to know about a strange author they've never heard of. And then things that also perform poorly are generally just vague, generic things like what's going on today? Like people will actually put that in their subject line and it's just, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So much goodness here. You have given so much helpful writing advice who have been your mentors and what have your favorite writing related books been that feeds you up or fills you up rather? Some of the favorite writing books, the ones that I recommend are because they're just so frank and direct Mm. and they're not afraid of, of saying this is right and this is wrong, even though it's a very subjective business. So one of those books the first five pages by Noah Lukeman is one that I've always enjoyed for being so forthright and making it so astoundingly clear how first pages go wrong. Vivian Gornick's The Situation and the Story is a very slim volume, but has tons of wisdom about what makes personal stories work on the page, especially book length memoir. There's a really great book by an editor called The Forest for the Trees that If you think editors are unnecessary or you've had bad experiences with editors, I would recommend reading that book to understand what a wonderful editor can do, the things that they can see right there in the title. (laughs) (laughs) And let's see, what else? The mentors, like these, I don't really know the authors of those books. Uh, I just know them by reputation. But some of the people that you know, I followed closely and do have a relationship with Richard Nash. He's the former publisher of Soft Skull. And he's another person who's very bold and isn't afraid to offend or say things that no one else will say, particularly about author earnings, because when people are all up in arms about the latest literary journal closure or some beloved publisher closing that probably never earned a dime, he'll be mm-hmm. like, this is not the end of literature. Publishing is not dead. The book is not dead. You can't kill poetry as long as they're teenage boys. <laughs> poetry will live on like cockroaches. You know, so I like I like that sort of keeping it real. Let's not get so precious about the literary work and the literary business. Mm, yes. And what's the best writing advice, I know it's hard, that you've given (laughs) or received or any of the top contenders? I think the advice isn't limited to writing, which is for whatever kind of project you're working on, like any writing project I consider complex, hard to grapple with, and not achievable in a single setting for the most part. And so that, for me, that makes the advice of break it into the smallest components possible, the smallest possible steps. I think that is the most valuable writing advice ever. Like as simple as today, your responsibility to yourself or to your writing is to just open the file. That's all you have to do is open the file. People actually have trouble doing that. Like they don't make progress because they're afraid of what they will find when they open the file. So that's your first job for today. If that's the case is to just open it (laughs) or to just write a hundred words or whatever it is. 
Oh, the relief, the relief that comes from small attainable steps. I find the same thing when I'm coaching writers and I relate it to running. I still do jog, but I did more competitive running a while ago. And it's like, if you promise to yourself that you're going to wake up at 4 a.m. and jog 20 miles every morning, like you're just shooting yourself in the foot. It's the same with writing, the smallest, most attainable steps and go even lower than that. Think of the lowest and then go even lower. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you, like all of us, have likely been affected by pandemic times. So what have the last few years looked like for you? And what have you noticed about the changes in the publishing industry? Well, you know, the funny thing is the pandemic was great for book sales and for publishing generally. Big publishers, small publishers, it didn't matter what sort of publisher you were, you saw sales increase unless you were just a failing business before. So yeah, it was just astonishing to see how much people kind of went back to books at, for for comfort, for pleasure, for diversion during the 2020 to 2022 period. And publishing is still benefiting from that. There's still this kind of ongoing halo effect where sales are still up from pre-pandemic times. So that's the good news. I don't necessarily think there's bad news other than that we're seeing shifts over to online retail. It was accelerated during the pandemic. It's sort of moderating, but still, most books are bought online now, regardless of whether it's print or digital. And we're also seeing that this goes hand in hand with that shift, that it's harder to break out a new book. There's a greater percentage of overall book sales that are now called backlist sales. So books older than a year. That's 70% of all book sales today, backlist. So this, you know, if you go back to 2010, the backlist percentage was around 53. That's a huge, huge change over the last 10 to 15 years. Now, why is that? Well, part of it is the move to online retail where, you know, the bookstore is not determining you're going to look at what new books are available and we're only going to make the new books available. And also the biggest chain in the United States, Barnes and Noble, no longer accepts pay for play. So publishers can no longer put their new titles on display in your face. So even Barnes and Noble, while they're obviously they're stocking new titles, if they don't want to emphasize new titles, They won't, you know, it's up to the local Mm -hmm. store. So this just raises the discoverability issue for people who are coming onto the market every year. It just gets a little harder because there's so many, you know, there's 50,000 traditionally published titles coming out every year. There's about 2 million self-published titles coming out every year. So, you know, every year you're battling the history of what came before. So I think that's where it's, I think it is tougher now than it's ever been to break out. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try or that it's hopeless. I don't mean any of that, but I think even publishing is still grappling with how do you launch a book today? Oh, which begs the question, how do you launch a book today? (laughs) Do you have any input or insight as to what, as someone who has a book coming out in two weeks? (laughs) Do you have any input or insight as to what helps people break through the noise and get discovered? 
Well, there was an interesting tweet recently by Lisa Lucas. She used to be head of the National Book Awards, and she's now working at Penguin Random House. And she recently tweeted about how, you know, people, (laughs) it only takes in the low hundreds of people saying something about a book for it to Mm. gain traction. It's not about getting millions of retweets or, you know, some of the things that are imagined, oh, I have to get on Oprah or I have to get New York Times. It really just takes a handful in in the big picture, a handful of people to talk about a book. So she was trying to encourage people to talk about books, this word of mouth, which public, I find it kind of amusing. I shouldn't be joking about it, but people always say, we don't know what sells books, but we know word (laughs) of mouth works. But how do you generate word of mouth? So there, there are so many ways to do it. And it depends on the strengths of the author and the publisher combined. So a lot of traditional publishers default to, we're going to try and influence booksellers and librarians and other influencers, whether they're on TikTok or Instagram or wherever they live, we're going to try and get them before publication to talk up this book. Authors have a tougher time taking that approach because they might not have the relationships in place. But if you've been kind of building a foundation far before the book launch, then maybe you do have those relationships. And so now it's time to start looking for the payoff from all of the literary citizenship activities you've been undertaking or all of the ways you've supported other authors. Now it's your turn to call in the favor, as it were, in a polite and respectful way. And it's really just a matter of reaching out one by one to the people that you think can help spread the word, however it is they do that. If they have a podcast, if they have a newsletter, if they have a social media account, encouraging people or giving them the tools if necessary to talk about your book. So that might mean giving them advanced review copies or a digital review copy. It might mean just saying, I know you're not interested in this book I wrote. It's not your thing, but would you at least mention it on Twitter? Like you can ask people to mention your book without reading it. I actually wrote a whole column about encouraging writers to ask for marketing and promotion support without asking people to read the book. It's not a bad thing. It's allowed. That's so great because (laughs) it's a relief to them, I'm sure, to go, okay, well, even the writer who is reaching out to me is acknowledging that my time is precious and that I might not have the time to read it, but they're just asking for this specific ask of, can you mention it here? The more specific, I think the better to don't be vague. Yeah. Give them the language to use, give them the tweet to copy and paste, give them the graphic. And all they have to say is my friend, so-and-so, or my colleague, so-and-so, their book came out today. Yay. Yes, making it as easy as possible. When I used to teach at the university to all of my writing students, I loved teaching and many of them asked me for recommendation letters for any number of things. And after a while, I got smart about it and I had this whole criteria of everything they had to do first and fill out to send to me in order for me to write the letter so that my writing of the letter took not all of my days. Um, I still greatly appreciated the student and all of their efforts, but I didn't want it to take up endless hours. And they had to also show that they were invested, that they were willing to put in the work if they were going to ask me for this favor. And so 
I have found on the receiving end when someone makes it really, really seamless for me about here are all the things and they give, they make it so easy that I'm much more likely yeah. to do it. Exactly. Yes. Mm, that's so good. Jane, I want to talk to you forever and ever. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, there are millions of questions I want to ask, but in respecting your time, tell us maybe just what's going on in your life these days? Like where, where are you generally in the world and what have you been up to as of late and what are you looking forward to? Well, currently I'm at work on the second edition of my book, The Business of Being a Writer, which is with University of Chicago Press. I'm finding the revision is maybe more time consuming than writing it from scratch. <laughs> um, I've pushed back my deadline twice now. Uh, so I, that's, that's the thing that, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and think I haven't made enough progress on. Mm. And then the other things that I do have been pretty stable for a few years now. And that's, I, I offer online classes every week with other instructors. And then I do my paid newsletter, the hot sheet every two weeks. So that's the bulk of what I do day to day. And then I try to wedge in the revision alongside. Wow. And last question, what's on your nightstand these days? What are you reading or looking forward to reading? I am reading a biography of Andy Warhol um, because I got super interested in his life story after watching a recent documentary. I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it's the one where they used AI to recreate his voice, mm -hmm. to narrate it based on his diary entries. It might in fact be called Andy Warhol Diaries. It's a delightful show. I think it might be on Netflix. Um, so that got me into the, the biography. It's, it's like an 800 page book. It's taking a long time. Mm. Oh my gosh, that sounds fascinating though. I am so appreciative of your time. This has been amazing. I wanted to continuously take notes as you were speaking. So when I listen to it, as all the listeners will, I'll be listening with a notepad in hand. And I'm going to be encouraging them to do the same. So to all the listeners, you definitely want to check out Jane's paid newsletter, The Hot Sheet. It is worth it. It is a gold mine of information and the business of being writer. I'm so excited for the second edition to come out eventually. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. Oh, isn't she a wealth of information? And this conversation does not have to be the end of you learning from her. She has so much free info on her website. She also has her free newsletter and her paid newsletter. You can find out all about everything at janefriedman.com. And then I have my website, meetingkennyjohnstone.com, where you can learn more about my book, Come Home to Your Heart, and my writer workout community. And if you want to let us know what your favorite takeaways from this conversation were, our names are also our Instagram handles. Let us know what your favorite tips and takeaways were from this interview. Another important name is my producer, Michelle Rado. You are the best. Thank you for all your hard work on the show. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story, and every story has a heart. See you next week. Thank you.